The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. We talk F1's cumbersome cars, the long-awaited Mercedes upgrade package, and what can be learned from spy shots. With a small gap between the Monaco and Spanish Grand Prix, we've taken the chance to squeeze in another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. And very well-timed it is too, because while Monaco usually isn't a massive weekend for technical talking points, it was this year, thanks to Mercedes. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me as always is someone who probably has more Monaco Grand Prix under his belt than he dares count in Gary Anderson. So hello Gary, still enjoying Monaco after all these years? Yeah, I think Monaco is always one of those races. It's just a tradition, you know, it's part of part of it. It's a bit like, you know, Monza, Italian Grand Prix. Um, it's, you know, it's happened for so many years, it just needs to be left alone. Um, we always talk about what you could do to Monaco, but, you know, my first time there was 1973. So I've seen what you might call massive changes between then and now. Um, and I suppose all for the better, but there was nothing wrong with it way back then either. Um, it's just the tracks changed. The tracks, you know, it's got more safety involved with it. Um, I suppose if there's anything, I could, I would say that it could be a bit, a little bit of a longer track. You could add in another half a kilometre or a kilometre somewhere. Um, they're reclaiming lots of land there, so there's no reason why not um, to plan it in. Basically, and it, you know, it won't it won't cost very much if you plan it in from the beginning. But um, I don't think it's going to change very soon. But I wouldn't be surprised to see the track get a little bit longer over the over the course of of the next you know five years or something. Um, we, I did put a proposal forward a few years ago on that to sort of turn left when you come down to the where you go into the tunnel instead of turn right, turn left, and then come back down again, um, head towards Menton for a little while. Um, so yeah, you could do that. It's where we used to actually. Whenever I first started down there, that was where the cars. That's where you worked at. That was the the paddock as such down there on the way to Menton, um, you put the cars in an overnight overnight car park, but you worked on them underneath the uh, the awning. So, uh, yeah, drive around the track when the, in a Formula One car was quite good fun. And, you know, when we used to drive around to the paddock um, or from the paddock to the pit lane and um, and then back again. So it's, it's always quite exciting to do that in a Formula One car. I've actually got a picture of me going up the hill no helmet on, um, hair blowing in the wind, um, and a Brabham BT 42 or 44, I'm not sure which, um, way back then. So, um, yeah, exciting times. It's quite nice to drive around Monaco in a Formula One car, I must admit. <laughs> well, I've only had the chance to do it in a Fiat Tipo hire car, which was, uh, which was less exciting. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing place, Monaco. And I think you wouldn't want many more tracks like this but I, ha- I think having a unique circuit like that a unique challenge a unique even situation for teams because although it's much better than it was in terms of how convenient everything is for teams it's still a tight squeeze and there's all sorts of compromises when they were packing up they've, they've sort of got t- uh, sort of two floor garages almost so I was watching the, the Alpine crew were sort of pushing spare floors up onto the first floor on the, out through the outside window and uh, all sorts of things so it's uh, a unique circuit and uh, long may it continue well, as always, we're going to start off by giving you a free choice of topics for the opening section of the podcast, Gary. We'll obviously save the big Mercedes upgrade for later, but what else has caught your eye this week? Well, I think, again, it's it's not unique to Monaco, but I think Monaco highlights it, really. And it's the, the size and the weight of these cars. You know, they have grown dramatically over the last few years. Um you know, we had huge cars way back, I suppose, in the in the 80s, and then the, the cars got smaller and smaller, and we got used to that smaller car, I suppose, a bit. Uh, but now they've gone they've gone very big again, um, longer wheelbases than in the past. Um, so that you know, they they sort of they outsize Monaco a little bit, I think, and, and I think it highlights that because of you know, as the cars get bigger, the track gets smaller effectively. So overtaking becomes that step harder. And we all want to see a bit of overtaking, but, you know, around Monaco, there was, there's never really been much overtaken over time. It's it's just one of those situations where qualifying's everything. And if you can get yourself into a good position on the track, you can hang on to it. But I think it is time to, to sort of take it as a highlight that, that basically the cars are too big for the circuits that they're racing in now, in general, um, and that does limit overtaking. So, uh, as I said on our, on our uh, live hub that we were doing during the, the, the weekend, I sort of said that it's time for something to happen. And I think, you know, 
everything's a challenge. But we've got a major regulation change coming in 2026. And, you know, if, if somebody was to hit the sort of 10% reduction button, uh, you know, scale the whole thing down, it wouldn't do any harm. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't effectively see it. It would just make the cars a little bit smaller. And, and in that, I would include the weight. Because although the teams struggle to build a car to the weight limit, um, that's only that's the challenge, um, and it should be a challenge. I don't think you can suffer. I don't think safety can change. I think all the safety, uh, the safety criteria has to stay. That all the tests have to stay for the safety. But you know, there's so much stuff. Whenever you look at it, so much small stuff all adding up to that weight. Um, you know, you just look at the brake duct systems and the, the amount of stuff that's in around the front uprights. You know, in the past we used to have an upright, you would have a wheel speed sensor in there, and that was more or less it. So, you know, the challenge is to do the best job you can within a set of regulations. And if those regulations were, let's say, the weight was to go down from seven hundred and um, what is it, ninety-eight kilograms, I think, um, down to let's say seven twenty, which is about a ten percent reduction some teams would get closer to it than others which would be fine because that's the challenge you know the challenge in design is about achieving the objective the, the objective at the minute is to produce as much downforce as you can under control and the car as light as possible and as light as possible zone is the challenge so some teams will get closer to it than others that's fine um that's what the as i say that's what the challenge is uh, but I think it's time it ha- has to happen, and it will help at all circuits, not just Monaco. But Monaco highlights it just because the cars are cumbersome. We have the what we call the front wheel, the sort of mudguard area, and the bigger tires, and the, the way the cars are laid out now. You know, it's no wonder they clip the barrier here and there because you just can't really see. Um, you have to sort of predict where you're going to go with the car. So there's a whole lot of stuff that you could do to make the cars more nimble, uh, invite overtaking, and make Monaco a better spectacle. And that, in turn, will make all the rest of the races a lot better. So I'd be a big fan of that for 2026. Hit the uh, reduction button just and uh, just go for a simple thing, like 10% reduction on the size of everything. Yeah, well, it's something they're working on for 2026, although they've identified the opportunity for weight reduction. Once you've considered all the things that have to be there and the safety systems, etc., that you referenced, the FIA seems to think that the opportunity for reduction is about 35 kilos, which is about 4.5%, so just under half of what you were looking for. So that would take it down to 763 kilos, which is okay. I do think there's an interesting thing in this debate in that there seems to be teams get a bit irritated if it's quite difficult to get down to the minimum weights. And the best way in Formula 1 to achieve something is to set a tough target, isn't it? Because they'll say, oh, this isn't yes. possible, this isn't possible. But suddenly, if you made it even more tough, they get down there eventually. I know there's a connected argument about the things they have to run and they will start saying, well, okay, this system needs to get lighter or whatever. And there'll be a bit of politicking there. But it, it's odd that like the start of last season for new cars, there seemed to be kind of outrage that a lot of them weren't down at the minimum weights. Like, well, that's a design challenge. Yeah, that, that's really what I'm saying. You know, we've all, we've always had the design challenge. It didn't matter what the weight limit was, whether it was you know way back 625 kilo, kilograms with the driver. You know, then we were still building cars under weight by quite a significant amount because you could put ballast underneath the car and you'd drag the centre of gravity down a bit, and and uh, you know the car would handle that a little bit better. It would look after the tyres a little bit better. You didn't have to do that, but you did it. Um, so you built everything as light as possible. You know, the, the design challenge will always be the same. It, it should be a challenge. And it's the same with the downforce of the car. You know, we see at the minute, we see Red Bull, you know, they're, they're dominating the season. Everybody thinks, you know, Red Bull have got better, more consistent downforce, higher levels of downforce, look after the tyres better. They've got everything sort of right. And the weight is just part of that equation. So if the challenge is higher, and as I say, I keep saying just... You know, let's not get sophisticated about saying, oh, we'll, we'll make the car, you know, uh, 100 mil narrower or we'll make it, um, you know, 7% sh- shorter. Just hit one button. It's just a 10%, as I say, reduction in everything. It's just easy. It's across the board. Everybody knows where they are right now. Uh, you know where you're starting from immediately and you can just get on with it. And as I say, 720 kilograms, it's it's not a light car. It's still not a light car. Um 
And then you just need to take into account whenever you're doing that, all the other stuff you change to 2026, because you, you know, the, the changes to the to the power unit can help a little bit on the way there. But as as I say, like like you had the the challenge should be there. It shouldn't be easy to achieve it, and that's what Formula One's about: achieving it in the best way possible. And I think if they go down by, as you say, seven hundred and forty something, it's it's not enough. It's not it's not a big enough challenge. It should not be easy. Yeah, and I think the important thing is that at least F1 and the FIA have drawn a line in the sand because the stated top line aim was to reduce weight or contain the growth and at least make sure it doesn't get any higher because I think if they didn't do that they just find ways to keep adding weight to it and obviously there's there's things they've done that are that are great like the halo I think is about seven kilos all told and that sort of thing is a positive thing obviously it doesn't do much 99.999% of the time but then every now and again you get an accident where you think well without the halo that could have been a, a different outcome so I guess it's that fine balance isn't it of uh, of making sure you've got the safety systems in the cars and everything and obviously increased hybrid uh, in the 2026 uh, rules the in- increased electrical element it's going to add weight as well but making sure you're not just allowing the weight to just keep growing and growing because yeah 798 kilos for a, an f1 car is, is crazily high yeah well you know i agree with you on the halo situation you know but and it's fine it is a safety area area there as all the safety regulations are and that and that's fine um, I'm sure there could be grams taken out of the halo if they, if they looked at it closely, uh, because obviously we've seen it tested a few times and it's done a pretty good job. But I'm sure there's optimization in the design. I'm not saying there'll be much, but there will be grams. And again, once you get that thing, it's high up and the, t- the teams complain about it a bit. But at the end of the day, they still put fairings around it. You know, I know those little carbon fairings weigh more or less nothing, but they weigh something. The little flick ups that are on the sides of it, they're all high up. So, you know, you, the, the teams will still add detail to it because aerodynamically it's that, you know, 0.0001% better aerodynamically. But if the weight limit's a big enough challenge, then you have to reevaluate that, those aerodynamic components that you're putting everywhere just to say, is it, is it a big enough advantage to have that stuff on there? Or do you just. You know, leave the halo alone, like the you know the GP or the F two cars or F three cars. Just leave them alone; they're okay. It works quite well. But you know, as I say, the teams, the challenge will be different. But I think the challenge should be should be tougher than it is now. Yeah, I think that's a, a sensible approach. And certainly, if you see any of those photos of a car from say thirty years ago alongside a, a current car, it's quite startling how much the growth is. That really uh, brings it home. And yeah, as you say, that'll be a, a gain at any any circuit, Monaco in particular. Well, now let's get on to what's been persistently the big technical talking point of this second era of full ground effect Formula One cars, Mercedes. It had a new package with front suspension, side pods and underfloor, the key changes in Monaco, visually very obvious. So having waited for so long, what did you make of this, Gary? I think the it's, it's a twofold thing. I, I don't think that what I saw aerodynamically was the biggest change, was, was as big a change as I expected to see. I think mechanically the front suspension was was very well engineered, uh, obviously to obtain, obtain the objective of controlling whatever downforce the car does produce by by adding anti-dive to it, um, support the front of the car when you're braking, um, because uh, as I said in a, in a column I did a little while ago, the way the underfloor is, it would be very easy in my opinion for the centre of pressure to shift forward um, as the car got as you were braking, basically, which is the last thing you want to be happening. You want it to shift rearwards if you can. Um, not easy to do. Uh, Red Bull probably achieved that by keeping the rear of the car low or pulling the rear of the car down under braking as they hold the front of the car up under braking. Um, whereas Mercedes have had only have had the opportunity to do the front suspension because they couldn't really change the gearbox. So mechanically, I think they've done a good job on the front of the car, but aerodynamically... I think it's a bit half and half. You know, they they haven't really gone down the the real strong, powerful undercut in the side pod uh, to affect the flow down the side of the car. Um, and from the luxury of seeing some of the pictures of the car dangling from a crane, 
um, the underfloor of it, I don't think it's very sophisticated. Um, and I don't, I don't think the underfloor itself has changed, I would say, dramatically from what it was previous to Monaco, from the, the small amount of pictures I've seen prior to Monaco to what I've seen now. I don't think there's a dramatic change there. Obviously, small detail stuff, because that goes on all the time. Um, so mechanically, I think they've carried out a job very, very well, very well engineered, and obviously it works around Monaco. We have to wait to another track, I think, like Barcelona, to see really, because Barcelona is one of the tracks where it challenges everything. Um, it's a you know medium speed, um, got high speed corners, it's got low speed corners, it's got a bit of everything. So it'll be interesting to see how it sort of works out there. But mechanically, I think they've done a good job and it's well engineered. Aerodynamically, I'd still hang a question mark on it that they're they're not really convinced or committed yet to to what direction they need to go in. Well, it is interesting because Andrew Shovlin, the head of Trackside Engineering, was talking about the fact that the uh, the data they'll get, particularly from Barcelona and kind of the next few races, will ultimately set the direction for going forward. So this is very much a, a starting point. There's a few interesting things here because obviously in terms of how far they could go with the change, they were limited currently because there's certain fundamental car architecture elements that that can't be changed. Obviously, they can't change the Well, they can change the chassis, but they're not going to because of the cost cap. There's a, a not a great deal you can do with the rear suspension. You can't transform the geometry of that because you're you're limited in terms of the uh, the gearbox uh, changes, etc. So there's some elements where it was always going to be a bit of a halfway house, and maybe that explains the reasons for the say the the cooling sort of it's gone a bit more towards the the sort of letterbox shape but it's sort of halfway between what they previously had the very vertical ones and the uh and the ones we see from the likes of ferrari and and red bull so i guess that's one of the reasons why it's not going too far but the really interesting thing for me is that they've said all along that the change to this sort of concept hasn't necessarily shown in the wind tunnel and simulation that it's a, a massive improvement. Now they have said this car is an improvement of the old spec of car, but do you think there's an element of, of hit and hope to this insofar as they're thinking, well, this is the direction other people seem to be able to get a big yield out of. And at some point they've had to commit to doing it, knowing that there's maybe something they don't necessarily know. There's something they're missing and just assuming that they'll, they'll hit that, uh, that long term upside because this is going to be developed over a, a long period of time now. Yeah, there is there is a certain extent there. I mean, I whenever I go back to the, the 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 changes that you visually see, in other words, the side pod and that undercut and the radiator intake, etc. Um, that you know, there's no reason that the cooling underneath there would limit them to what they've done. I think they could have exploited it further if they wanted to to do something like the Red Bull solution. Uh, it would be more difficult because of their where they've got their upper crash structure, the the side impact structure in that in that fairing. So they've sort of taken that fairing and blended that into the side pod. That means that the side pod's sort of completely different because it's got a a radiator a top, a longer top on the radiator intake duct than the Red Bull. Uh, the Red Bull has got a longer bottom as such, so the airflow spillage out of that radiator duct doesn't get involved with the critical areas of the under underfloor which is the, the that undercut and the flow through the to the sides of the the edges of the floor ferrari is fairly symmetrical um so mercedes has still gone the opposite direction on that i suppose you might call it and i don't i can't in my mind i can't see why that's the right direction because that's not it's not what you'd want to do you wouldn't want to put that air spillage that comes out the radiator duct when the car is got enough flow through the radiator to say it needs to waste some you can't manage that spillage unless you manage it correctly and the last thing you wanted to do is go into the low pressure area or that the high speed uh, airflow area and that undercut that you're trying to help seal the floor so i can't quite see the logic in what they've done converting from their vertical radiator intake to what they've got now um it would be difficult to go the whole red bull hog i i must admit without changing the side impact structure. But there might have been a different solution there somewhere that they could have achieved. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just talking at the top of my head. Um, the thing that you always do with a car is you have a set of uh, a set of aerodynamic characteristics that you define. That's what you're trying to achieve. And that is, you know, it's, it's, it's center pressure shift. 
it's uh, how you where you how the downforce generates with speed and how you, what parts of the car stall um, or reduce drag at high speed you know, in other words going down the straight car gets close to the ground it'd be nice if the underfloor stalls uh, you don't need the downforce at that point in time at a certain speed you need to be able to switch that on and off so as long as you don't have a high speed corner let's say above 250 kilometers an hour you don't have to create any more downforce then so you can stall the floor so that's a, a controllable thing with ride height uh, it's what happens when the car the, the steering lock changes where do you want the center of pressure to shift to when the car rolls when the car yaws um, all of that stuff is your sort of aerodynamic philosophy that you lay out and that's what you follow that's what any team follows it's known aerodynamic philosophy and if it doesn't you know get within those boundaries then you try to get within those boundaries and that's the sort of dna of a team and i'm not sure that for these current cars the mercedes dna is correct um so i think with even no matter what they change on the car they're still looking for their old known dna that they they believe makes the car work correctly and maybe they have to scratch their head a little bit and think about the fact that when they try other parts in the car or different directions it might change with their their thoughts on the dna of the car and and they need to try to look further than what they're looking at the moment i mean there's nothing there's nothing bad about what they've got you know it's, it's pretty decent um but it's just not as good as the red bull it's just not as quick as the red bull it doesn't it doesn't give the drivers as much confidence as the red bull um and I use that word loosely because if you look at Perez uh, in Monaco in a Red Bull and you look at Verstappen at Monaco in a Red Bull, it was two completely different cars. So, you know, the Red Bull is not an easy car. It's right on an edge, but it's on that edge that Verstappen can exploit. So, and that's part of the DNA of the, of the Red Bull. It's been built around what Verstappen wants. Um, but at the minute, I think Mercedes are still a little bit lost as far as where the ground effect, what the ground effect DNA really should, how it sh that should influence their own philosophy and aerodynamics. Yeah, it's certainly quite a big learning process, I think, with this change that they're, that they're going through. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Obviously, Monaco is a, a very limited circuit to, to judge cars on. The driver feedback was sort of very gently positive. Hamilton said that he thought the front end was a, a little bit better. There was a bit of an improvement in braking stability. Still need to obviously make that rear end a bit more powerful so that there's uh, there's less of a, a kind of deficit of grip there. But do you think they'll have learned much meaningful from Monaco or is it really in Barcelona that they'll get the, the proper meaningful data to start building up a, a proper in-depth picture of this car? Well, you know, the more you run the car, the better. It doesn't matter, really matter what track. The, the thing with Monaco is that you're chasing the, your tail nearly all, all weekend because the track changes so much from one session to another and from day to day because of the way the, the track evolves initially. Then they wash the track and, you know, it gets rained on at night or whatever and the track's very different the next day. So it's very, very difficult to put a, um, you know, developments or changes on the car because the next time you run it, the, the track will be different anyway. So you're always playing catch up with the track in Monaco. But still, you know, they, they have got some data from there that will lead them in a probably a slightly different direction for, for uh, Barcelona than they would have done if they hadn't run at Monaco. But Monaco, uh, Barcelona is going to be the track where they can get real car data. It's a track where they've tested numerous times. Um, they know the, the characteristics of the track in and out um they know what they want to get out of the car there and that's really the big test you know that all the teams go there to be honest knowing knowing what the car characteristics should be they know the sort of efficiency levels they want to run the downforce levels the the way the wind blows the whole bit is known so if the weather stays good for them um i think barcelona will be 
a test where there's post Barcelona, there's no real hiding place, I suppose you might say. It's 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 real. What's happening is real. Um, it would be nice if they'd had Imola to sort of again got the the basis in place for uh, for more data going to to Barcelona. But I think still Barcelona is somewhere where you normally you go, and if you're testing in the winter with a with a new car, within ten fifteen laps twenty laps you, you know whether you've got a good car or not, and the same will happen basically over the first couple of sessions in in Barcelona this weekend coming, um, you'll know pretty quickly whether they've, you've still got problems or not. Now that, you know, we're talking about the instability of the rear of the car, you know, I can understand that if the rear of the car is lifting under braking, that's what it will cause. When the car, rear of the car lifts the side sides of the floor, pick a bigger gap, more air leaks underneath there, um, and you lose downforce. So if you don't have a good philosophy for the undercut on the side pods to seal the sides of the floor as you're braking it only gets worse so you know the 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 the, the sort of problems that they have and the solutions are, are fairly black and white but it's um it's you know pretty difficult to achieve them and obviously the the big target is is next year's car fundamentally so i guess that's the interesting work going on in the background isn't it because there's things next year they can change like the cockpit position they've talked about presume there's a good chance of that changing we presume there'll be changes to the rear suspension to complete the job in terms of creating that opportunity for platform control which has all the benefits you mentioned in terms of that aero sense of pressure control so this almost it's much like last year isn't it this almost becomes a test car through to the end of the season but i guess it's also important for them to really show proper tangible progress over the rest of the year because it can be very easy just to defer success almost can't it then you get into a mindset of it's going to be better tomorrow and tomorrow never comes yeah it's very true i mean I, i can understand them you know moving the driver forward a little bit because the the side impact structure goes with it. So if they wanted to, to build the car initially for this year, well, and for last year, actually, if they wanted to detach that uh, impact structure as such from the side pod and get more downwash from it further forward, then that's the only way they could really do it. But now that's gone, if you understand what I'm saying, because they've connected it up to the top of the side pod. Um, so it's easy, very easy to trip yourself up with something that you can't really get out of. And the big, the big thing is for this season, if you keep changing stuff, you arrive at a race meeting all the time with something you don't understand. And it takes a little bit of time to get the best out of it, no matter whether you're Mercedes or you're, you know, you're Alfa, Alfa Romeo. It doesn't really matter. It still takes time to get the best out of it. So at some point in time, it's sometimes easier to bite the bullet and say, right, OK, we've got enough data to, to, to believe that this is the direction we need to take for next year. Um, and let's just get on with this year, do the best we can with what we've got, uh, and pile all our efforts into next year. And actually what will happen is you'll probably get better results from this year because you'll arrive with a car that you know has got X deficits. Um, You won't be trying to miraculously fix them. You'll be trying to bandage them as best you can. So you can sometimes get better results out of the year that you're actually biting the bullet as such with. Um, and put more effort into the, the, the following year. So some point in time, I think, by mid-season, um, Mercedes are definitely going to have to do that unless, unless they do hit that, you know, that magic bullet that fixes all the problems, which I don't see appearing very soon, to be honest. It's worth talking in a bit more detail about the front suspension because obviously you're quite a hard taskmaster when it comes to judging F1 car suspension. You were actually quite positive about the, the job Mercedes has done with that. And obviously that's not an easy change to pull off. We know roughly what they've done. They may be somewhere in the vicinity have doubled the, the anti-dive geometry. But what did you make of the detail work on that? And also how much of the opportunity can you access in terms of that platform control by putting a bit of anti-dive into the the front end? And we should note anti-dive is not some magic new thing. It's a well-known about geometry. So uh, in itself, it's not something uh, something magical. But obviously, they can do that at the front, but they can't do the matching rear, as you've alluded to. So there's still going to be that uh, that unaccessed gain with the, with what you do with the rear. Um, yeah, I mean, 
Whenever I say uh, uh, about the front suspension, uh, what I really say is they've engineered it well. And I think that's true. You know, whenever you look at it, they've, they've done a very good job of, of achieving more anti-dive on the car, which is never easy unless you've built it in from the beginning to have adjustable anti-dive, which is, you know, nigh on impossible. However, in saying that, you know, when you do look at the Red Bull, um, it is different in the fact that they have actually got quite a lot of um, positive dive on the bottom wishbone. Uh, there's a few shots I saw from Monaco that shows that the rear leg of the bottom wishbone is actually a bit lower than the, the forward leg of the, where it joins the chassis. So the, the, the anti-dive on the top front wishbone of the Red Bull uh, doesn't, isn't as dramatic as it actually looks if you take the total percentage of, of, uh, of anti-dive. But as I say, engineering-wise, what Mercedes have done is a very good, very well done, very neatly done. I haven't obviously seen the, the inner detail of it, but just you know the detail of how they've adapted it to the car and whatever is is very very good. So that is a positive. The thing is, that, you know, with these cars, obviously, you know, they run at speed. The car gets near the ground. The car produces more downforce because of that, because of the ground effect. But then you hit the brake pedal, and I've always said the brake pedal is when the driver gets his confidence. It's it's how he feels the car during that period. If you hit the brake pedal and you're, you know, you're, you feel, oh, the rear's a bit close to the mark here. It's a bit light. You don't want to turn the steering wheel. And that's where the driver confidence comes from. So it's not about just holding front up when you're braking. It's about holding the rear down. And that's a massive, massive difference because the weight transfer you get, it, you know, basically it comes off the rear axle and goes onto the front axle, which gives you more load in the front. So if you've got the same thing happening aerodynamically, you've got double the problem. So what you have to do or try to do in the car and its aerodynamic characteristics is to allow... You can't stop the weight transfer happening, um, but what you can try and do is stop the car attitude changing. So aerodynamically, it doesn't transfer the aerodynamic load in the same direction. And if possible, it transfers the aerodynamic load in the opposite direction. So they haven't been able to achieve that yet. So whenever they talk about the rear end being nervous and still needing stability in, in the rear of the car, I'm not seeing them achieving that anytime soon. But as I say, engineering-wise and front suspension, they've done it really well, and they haven't had they haven't had the uh, you know the ability to do the rear because of the regulations and the and the fact they can't change the gearbox. And I guess the, the final question that's that's worth asking is a more broad one, but obviously. Mercedes have had problems with uh, with their cars over the past eighteen months. We knew about all about the porpoising and bouncing, which was the primary problem initially last year. But once they got that under control, there were other problems. But there's an interesting counterpoint because Aston Martin, obviously, last year they started the year with very similar problems. They were talking about, well, there's a load of performance in this car we can't access. Once we can get it get it sorted out, we will. But they then had it in Spain the completely different change in concept which is although it's visually quite different to what they've got now there's still a straight line from that upgrade in Barcelona last year through to the current car you see this year so they took a decision a long time ago to make quite a big change when they saw what everyone else was doing so do you think it is fair to say that maybe Mercedes should have made the switch earlier and seen the way the wind was blowing or is that a bit of an oversimplification of the process because obviously they are different cars well, they, yeah, they are different cars, but you know you have to you have to consider that obviously the Alpha, uh, the um, Aston Martin, sorry, the Aston Martin is um, uses the same engine gearbox, and with that probably rear suspension as the um, as the Mercedes. So they they haven't got the ability to hold the rear end of the car down. You know they they don't have it, at least at least in the design philosophy. Maybe they've got some trick stuff in there that that helps do it. But um, you know, Dan Fowles came from from Red Bull. He he brings with him, you know, the Red Bull aerodynamic DNA, I suppose you might call it, not the componentry and not copying, but the you know the mental philosophy that's driven into all of the people at at Red Bull of how the car should operate. So he's you know been able to lead Aston Martin in the direction of adapting everything they do to the Red Bull philosophy. And I think it shows. It works. 
But Mercedes don't have somebody that's doing that. They're they're still within their own um, their own, as I say, DNA, aerodynamic DNA. So what Aston Martin has shown is it's possible to build a car that doesn't have this rear end control um, to to keep the car from rising up, but still get the car to be pre- to be pretty decent. Um, and aerodynamically, the sh- aerodynamic shift compensates for that weight transfer. So what they're showing is possible with a Mercedes rear end package to actually achieve the Red Bull objective. And Mercedes Mercedes are missing that. They, you know, they need, well, it's wrong to say they need to bring somebody in, but they need to change the philosophy within, within themselves as to how they want the car to operate, how they want the car to work before they can actually set out about uh, redesigning their aerodynamic surfaces to achieve that um, that objective, so it's it's one of those sort of strange things, you know. Unless you actually, you can't just keep doing the same thing day in day out. You have to sometimes change what you're doing and look at it in a different way. And I don't see Mercedes wanting to do that. I still think they believe in what they believe in. Yeah, and that's why it's going to be interesting to follow this car, its evolution right the way through this year and into next year because this is very much the start of the corrective process so still a lot of questions to be answered still a lot of knowledge to be built there and i think we're going to be talking about the mercedes car concept and design for quite some time yet this is very much not the solution to their uh, their difficulties Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. It can be on anything, perhaps a misguided attempt to stump Gary, or even just a really seemingly straightforward question that maybe even you feel it's stupid to ask, because I'm always very conscious, and Gary probably even more so about the fact we can throw around a lot of technical terms and assumed knowledge. But this podcast is all about learning, so please don't be uh, afraid. You can send a written email to podcasts at the-race.com, podcasts at the-race.com, or if you prefer, record a voice note and send it to us. And make sure you do let us know who you are if you go the voice note route, and then we'll play that on the show. We'll always try and squeeze in as many questions as we can, and we've got three this week to work through. And the first for you, Gary, is from Mark Riley. It's related to our main topic. Mark says... I've noticed that there is an overlapping protruding panel under the nose of the Mercedes around the front lower wishbone leg. Maybe there is an access panel missing from the underside that will pull the panels on the side of the nose together. But to me, it looks like an intentional overlap that may allow airflow through. Am I seeing things or have Merck stumbled upon a loophole that may have an S-duct type effect? Um, well, Mark, you know, it's, it's very observant. Um, I, I've had a very close look at the front of the Merck as best I can see. And, you know, the nose itself um, is very narrow. It, it sweeps in from where the front wing sort of finishes, sweeps in quite tight, uh, and then comes back out again onto the front, the front bulkhead of, the, of, the, of the, uh, the chassis. The front bulkhead in itself looks like a complete unit, uh, solid unit. So I don't see any ducts there. Sometimes what they do have is the fairing around the, uh, the inner, inner wishbone leg where it picks up on the chassis, that fairing. Um, how would you say, just comes forward a bit of the, the intersection between the nose and the chassis. And they use that bit of a fairing as a sort of, um, how would you call it, guide, I suppose you might say, to, to, to fit the nose on. So that it's a, you know, the, the nose fits inside it. I haven't seen it as a duct. Um, I'm not saying that it isn't by any means, because, you know, obviously pictures are pictures. You can only see what you can see. Uh, I haven't seen them all. Maybe you've seen something different. I think in reality, some people have some uh, what you might call ducts there in that area, because it does mean that whenever you're relieving the, you know, making the nose as narrow as possible, then you don't have to bring it out as dramatically to to line up with the chassis. And some some teams, I think, do use it to flow some air through to help some cooling uh, in around the battery pack, which is underneath the well behind the driver's seat, really. I suppose you might call it in the bottom of the fuel tank just flow some air through that area to just take the heat away. Um, as far as S-ducts is concerned, I don't see the, the, the Mercedes having an S-duct. It's got a protective um, 
carbon fiber cover over all the, the, the steering rack and the master cylinders, etc., on the on the front bulkhead, so that when they have to fit a nose on um, or a you know a spare nose as such during a pit stop, it's it doesn't damage anything, and all that's built in with a big electrical connector, which will be the loads from the front wing, etc., that they're they're um, making sure they know when the front wing's working efficiently or not. Um, so I haven't seen what you've seen, but I'm not saying there's not something there, but I can't quite see it being an S duct. I can see it being a little bit of a cooling duct. Um, so I'll keep looking though, and uh, if I find someone else, you'll, I'll write about it sometime. Yeah, I'll try and make sure I have a close look at the car in uh, in Spain this weekend and see if we can get a, a, a nice clear photo with the detail for you to have a bit of a look at. But yes, yeah, certainly an excellent spot there. Our next question is from Stephen Hamburg, who says, First, I appreciate the podcast you put on. Lots of really good information that always leaves me hungry for more. The question I have pertains to the floor of the cars. As we saw during qualifying in Monaco, Sergio Perez's car was lifted off the track. This gave everyone a good view of the bottom of the Red Bull. My question to you is, does that actually help other teams you get a couple of pictures of it but does that translate to other teams at least considering the geometry they saw and potentially incorporating it into their design i imagine it must be tempting given the success that red bull has had so far but does it actually translate to any real information gained by other teams well first of all Stephen, um we appreciate you listening to the podcast because that's what why we do them and it's nice to hear somebody that uh, does appreciate us doing them um Coming onto Sergio Perez's car being lifted, we saw obviously the the two that in Monaco that had the best crane crane elevation. I suppose was was Perez's car and Lewis Hamilton's car. Now in Lewis's car, you could you could see the geometry of the floor reasonably well, and the way the shadows were, um, you could see it reasonably well. Um, as far as Perez's car was concerned, I've looked at it pretty hard. The pictures I've seen and it's very very difficult to make out it's a much more complicated surface than on the on the mercedes so it does throw its own um how would you say shadows um but it is a much more three-dimensional package um the yeah i suppose the whole detail of it is much more complicated and it will be something that the teams will look at and it will not necessarily be easy to copy from it but it might just spark a bit of thought. Now, there's part of it halfway back, um, I suppose, or three-quarters of the way back, maybe. Um, there's, from the, the step, from the, the throat of the floor, there's a sort of step in the in the Red Bull underfloor. And, you know, one of these sort of things is if you've got a, an area down the side pod where you can seal it well, down the, the, the outer edge of the side pod where you can seal it well by the vortex generation or whatever trick stuff you've got, then that's the area you want to try and um, accelerate the airflow as fast as you can. So putting a step in it there is a, it's a bit of an old IndyCar trick. Many years ago, that's what they used to do. Um, so if you can get a position where it's sealed well, then you accelerate the air very quickly at that point, and you'll get more low-pressure air under or higher-speed airflow underneath the throat of the car. Um, so, as I say, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's so much different from, from Mercedes to Red Bull that you know let's say there's a half a second difference in lap time um, between those two cars in general or maybe a little bit more maybe eight tenths of a second at sometimes that the, the complexity of the underfloor of the red bull compared to the mercedes is is tenfold i suppose you might call it so it takes a huge amount to get a little bit um so it's one of those sort of situations where it Seeing the, the Red Bull floor the way it was, I don't think you could pick up the detail of it very well, but I do think you could pick up the fact that it, it needs to be a huge amount more complex before you get much more out of it, if you do. And that's, again, something that the, the teams will pursue because of seeing that, that picture. They will say, hang on a minute or two, these, you know, this, this, this surfaces that we have are very, well, they're all three-dimensional, but they're very two-dimensional um, flow you need to really sort of exploit that a lot further it's, uh, there's a lot of gr a ground to be covered here to, before we can get to the complexity of a, a red bull floor so yes it'll wake people up a little bit but i don't think you could copy it yeah, and the one thing you can be certain of is that 
pictures of that will have been sent around all sorts of uh, design offices at every Formula One team to have a good look at it. Sometimes it's not that copying it or anything is the solution. It's more just it gives you perhaps an idea of some area to explore or think about or analyse and think, okay, well, if you can understand this, maybe there's some gain to be made. But it's more a signpost than a, than a final destination, I guess, is the way to think of it. Uh, our final question comes from William Shaye, who is a high school student, who says, since the beginning of the 2023 season, the Red Bull DRS has been one of the main talking subjects in the F1 technical world. It has been brought up many times that the rear end of the car plays a crucial role in the overall aerodynamic efficiency of the vehicle. As teams rely heavily on wind tunnel testing, I was wondering if it was a common practice to simulate exhaust gases during these testing periods. How important are these hot gases to the rear of the car? Finally, wouldn't it be important to converge the flow from the Coke bottle and the diffuser in front of the exhaust pipe in order to reduce induced drag? Thank you for this incredible podcast. Well, um, William, um, high, school, high school student, um, pleased to see you're following motorsport and hopefully your, uh, your studies will take you into the engineering side of, uh, of Formula One because it's a, it's a fantastic world to get involved in. Um, the thing that I'd say about it, starting at the, at the end first, the, the exhaust pipe is located on the car and fairly well defined in its position. So it does, they have attempted to try to um, minimize the effect that the flow through the exhaust pipe will have on the diffuser or on the rear wing or on anything. So it's, it's sort of a standalone component right now. And obviously, again, because of the turbo, it's one of those sort of things where the, the exhaust pipe size is defined. Um, it's big enough to be uh, the velocity of the airflow through it, not to be you know, too dramatic. So to use it would be quite difficult nowadays. Uh, to do anything much. Um, connecting the Coke bottle up and the, and the diffuser to the exhaust pipe, reducing drag. You know, if you're, if you're trying to fill up the hole that the Coke bottle is making or, the, or the, the, the hole behind the diffuser, then you're actually stopping the whole back end of the car working well um, because of the, you know, that, that low pressure that's at the back of the diffuser area um, is something that you're using to actually make the diffuser work. You want flow coming through from, through the Coke bottle over the top of the diffuser, trying to suck, pull the air out through from below the car. And if you fill that up with the exhaust gas, it's or, or try to detail the filling up of the exhaust gas with the exhaust gas, it's going to reduce the effect of that. So I think you'd actually lose down, more downforce than you would drag, to be honest, and all at the wrong time. Um, you know, the, we, we talk about the whole back end of the car um, affecting the drag, of, the drag of the car. The diffuser itself or the underfloor of the car is very, very efficient. You know, and, and again, as rounded up numbers, you're probably talking about producing downforce underneath the car at you know, 8 to 1 or 10 to 1 ratio downforce to drag. Whereas the rear wing um, that we saw at Monaco would probably be less than 3 to, three to 1. At a normal circuit, it'll probably be about 3.5 to 1. So you've you know, the thing that you want to do is the DRS. You, you want to work on that because that's the that's the area where basically you can um, get the biggest effect of least downforce loss for most drag loss. Um, what I talked about whenever I said about the Red Bull uh, DRS system is that if you can affect the, the, the top wing, which will then or can affect the beam wing because the beam wing is any, very inefficient, but the beam wing does work the diffuser quite quite strongly. Um, but when you open the DRS, if you can affect the beam wing and get it to stall as well, then you get a sort of double whammy. And because of that double whammy, it will affect the diffuser as well. But the diffuser is very efficient, so the, the drag reduction on the diffuser will be relatively small, um, but the drag reduction on the beam wing and the top wing can be very high. So... The biggest drag part of the, the rear of the car is the two rear tires. They're massive, you know, the blockage there is huge. And the low pressure, the, the weight behind them is huge. So very little that any team can do about that. But you still just got to do as much as you can within the constraints that you've got. And I think Red Bull have taken the, the DRS as part of the, uh, the, their F1 car design and said, right, these are the things that happen to it. You know, it has to be just down for us. The thing, there's no point in just opening a, a wing that's uh, got very little change when you open it. You have to maximise the design of that wing so that when you open the DRS, you minimise the drag. And they've taken it as part of the car. It's not just a wing, it's actually part of the car. 
So they've, they've really pursued every detail to get to where they are. And I think, you know, you have to pat them on the back. They've, they've got everything pretty near right um, this season, for sure, especially for Max Verstappen, who drives his car in his own unique, in his own unique way. And in terms of the, the exhaust gas flow, how's that simulated and, and factored into this whole process of, of aero design? Well, the, the the big thing, you know, you will simulate it. You will turn exhaust gas flow on and off to see the difference at all sort of the different characteristics. Um, basically, you know, when you had blown diffusers, um, either underneath the car or the, the, the Kwanda effect, um, all of that you could manage because you were using, you know, quite small diameter pipes Um and you were blowing air at high high velocity, but you you definitely weren't blowing it at you know eight hundred degrees or something. You're blowing it just cooled, and you would look at the effect of of airflow on and airflow off, and that's where you sort of optimise your design of your diffuser or whatever you were blowing that airflow onto. Um, so you would always put air on and off. Um, the big the big thing as well is you know the 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 radiator duct and the blockage that I keep talking about is to simulate that and have the radiator in your wind tunnel as near the same flow characteristics as the real world. Or if you can't do that, um, then, you know, you percentage block them up so that you do know that when that flow spills, it changes the characteristics of the airflow around the car. It's the change you want to see with the exhaust gas or any flow so we used to take, um, put an air mover in the, in the car and you'd open up the air box and let the flow go through and into the exhaust pipe. Um, and then you would also close, close that off because that simulated you closing the throttle, basically. Um, and no exhaust gas and no air, and the airflow would spill out of the air box. So you could sort of characterize the, the car with the, 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 the engine being f- flat chat or, um, or with the throttle closed. And I'm sure they still do something very, very similar at the moment, um, because you want to see the effect of that of that happening. You know, that it's quite different now with the turbo, and the fact you got the um, MGUH, because you can you can spool the turbo even when the engine's not running, and keep the flow going through the exhaust pipe, um, or you can stall the turbo with the uh, with the motor, and you, know, you can play you can play tunes on it basically. But uh, the teams will still simulate some exhaust gas flow just to see the difference with, with the flow on or the flow off to see if there's a characteristic that changes in the car to, that they can change by altering how the throttle maps work or how the turbo works. Uh, and just basically it gives you a better understanding of the car. You have, to, you have to model all the extremes and try and then do the best thing you can to reduce the risk of those extremes being detrimental to the performance of the car. Well, we had three great questions there and uh, three good answers as well. So if anyone else has a question about F1 tech, send it through to podcasts at theRace.com. That's podcasts at the-race.com. As simple or as complicated as you like, and we'll try and get as many of them in on future podcasts. Thanks very much, as always, Gary, for your insights. It's always great to talk to you. We're going to be back in two weeks, so that's going to be just before the Canadian Grand Prix with more tech chat and more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.